we get ready to turn to the Word of God, you can open your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. I um, want, want to say a few thank yous before I get in to the message this week. Uh, first of all, I, I want to thank Mark and Risa uh, and everybody who served at Mission OB on the 4th of July. Can you just give it up with me for everybody who came out here in the rain, in the storm? Um, I, I was told the fireworks didn't go off until about 1045, uh, and, and we had a core team of individuals who hung out for that, who, who came and, and gave away beverages until the rain started so hard, and they had to kind of run inside and, and huddle up. Um, thank you guys for loving our city well. Thank you for serving our city well. I'm, I'm so grateful that, that I can be out of town and know that there, there's 35 people from City Church on a holiday, in the rain, showing up to be a blessing, to reach our city by reaching one. I think that's so awesome. So thank you to, to each and every one of you who are a part of that. also want to make a, a huge thank you to Josh Newman, who spoke last Sunday morning. I hope you were here to hear Josh's message. Maggie's trying to clap. You guys can give it up for Josh. You clap, put some noise behind that clap. People get behind you. It's awesome, awesome, stepping out. Now, um, I got a chance to listen to his message, and, and it was very encouraging to me. I hope you guys got a chance to listen to it as well. I, I love what he did as he kind of set the tone. He talked about the three legs, or he used the word the three pillars uh, in First John, the three reasons why John is writing. But then he went beyond that, and he said, here's why it's important. Here's what's missing, or here's what happens if one of them is missing. He, he said, if we have wrong belief, but we still have right love and right action, he said, we're vulnerable. He said that we're leaving ourselves open to being deceived, to being misled. Um, I, I believe it's First Peter that says, and I might be wrong on this, but that, no, it's James, says that, that when we doubt, we're, we're like a wave of the ocean. We're just cast about. And that was what I immediately thought of as Josh talked about that, that, that when we don't have right belief, Man, we're subject to just being, to chasing after this thing or that thing and, and being misled and being deceived. And then he said if we have right belief and we have right love but we don't have right actions, we don't live right, now we're hypocritical. And, and how can the world see what we have and want what they have if they look at us and say their life hasn't changed? There's no evidence of the power of God. Man, I think the, the, the greatest testimony we can have is change life. I'm not the same person I used to be. I live differently now because I've encountered the love of God, and, and I think that's so impactful. Um, and, and then he said, if we have right love and we have right belief, or excuse me, have right lifestyle and right belief, but we don't have right love, he said, then, then we're the, the Bible thumper. We're the jerk that everybody hates, right? That stereotypical person who goes around just holier than thou, putting everybody down. Um, and, and that's not Jesus either. Right? John's very clear in this book about the importance of loving one another. In fact, we're going to see more and more of that as we continue in 1 John chapter 4 today. That's the leg or the pillar that we're going to primarily uh, speak on this, this morning. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 13, pick up where Josh left off. He says, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, now, this may be a really easy verse to overlook, but if you realize who's saying this and what he's saying, this is so massively significant. John, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, this man who spent three and a half years following Jesus Christ, who saw so many miracles, who saw Jesus do so, such incredible things, this man who was there at the cross, who Jesus actually spoke to from the cross, the only disciple who was there, 
who watched Jesus die, and Jesus spoke to him and, and basically said, I need you to adopt my mom. You're, she, she's your responsibility now. I'm not here for her anymore. I need you to be there for my mother. This disciple, he says, look, we, and, and we don't know when he says we, we don't know who he's referring to. He's obviously ministering with some other eyewitnesses. There's obviously some others who are, who are riding with him, who are, who, who are there with him, who saw these same things. But we know that John was the eyewitness. He says, we have seen and we testify that God, the Father, sent his son to be the Savior of the world. We just sang about it, right? Jesus, you can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. Do you believe God is mighty to save? Do you believe he's still mighty to save? Do you believe he's mighty to save your coworker who doesn't know Jesus? Do you believe he's mighty to save your loved one who doesn't know Jesus? Do you believe he's mighty to save you out of whatever junk or bondage or situation or despair or discouragement you're going through? Do you still believe that God is mighty to save? Because I'll tell you this much, John did. He saw it with his own eyes. Jesus came into the world to be the savior of the world. And this is what sets Christianity apart. And there's, there's other things that set Christianity apart. This is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other faith, from, from every other religion on the face of the world. I don't know if you ever talk to somebody and, and they're just, well, all religions are basically the same. There are all these ancient texts and these ideas of, of how people can get to God. But Christianity is different. You see, uh, if we look at Islam, Islam was founded by one man named Muhammad. Who, who, who said that I went into this cave and Gabriel, the, the, the angel, appeared to me and he gave me this revelation. And so I'm a prophet and I'm declaring this. And so he won a lot of followers to himself by convincing them that he had seen this revelation. And, and they went out and started conquering the world, right? And started taking over areas and in the process they forced conversions. And that's how Islam has grown for the last 13, 1400 years. So that's Islam. Mormonism. Founded, which, by the way, my dad grew up in, and so I was back home with my dad this week, and, and, and so grateful that God has saved him out of that. But Mormonism is founded by one man, Joseph Smith, who had some revelations that, that I, I appeared, you know, this angel Moroni appeared to me, and he told me where to find these seer stones, and I was able to find this New Testament of Jesus Christ, this Third Testament and he put all this stuff together, and he rallied to himself a bunch of followers, and they moved across the country to Illinois, and then eventually to Utah, and, and they did all this stuff. And, and that's where this faith came from, and Buddha, right? Buddhism, how did Buddhism get founded? Buddhism got founded because one guy went on this spiritual journey, and, and he pursued nirvana, and he figured out how to get to nirvana, how to get to this higher spiritual place, and he told a bunch of people about it. And so all these faiths basically follow the same pattern. One person, isolated, by themselves, gets a revelation and tells a bunch of people about it. Christianity's different. See, Christianity was also founded by one man, Jesus Christ. But that one man appeared, and he didn't just persuade people by his teachings. He didn't just persuade people because he said, here's what I know that nobody else knows. And if you listen to me, you're going to have a chance to learn it. Jesus came, and he actually predicted his own death. I'm going to die, and three days later, God's going to raise me back to life, and that's going to be evidence that I am the Son of God. What a crazy claim. What a nonsense claim. What an absolutely asinine thing to say unless you could actually do it. Unless it could actually happen. And so it did, and Jesus dies this sinner's death, right? He's crucified on a cross, this, this, thing, this worst punishment the Romans had. 
the thing that they did to their worst criminals, the most torturous thing they knew how to do, the most painful, miserable, humiliating experience known to mankind at this point in time, done to Jesus Christ. And what happens? Three days later, God breathes life back into him. He comes back to life. But it wasn't just Jesus who then comes out and says, yo, hey, I died. Nobody saw it. I died, but now I'm back. He was publicly executed. Everybody saw him die. And then he appeared to tons and tons of people, including John. In fact, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is one of the accounts of how many people Jesus appeared to. This is very significant when you get into why do I believe that Christianity is real? Why do I believe that Jesus truly is the Son of God? 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 3, the Apostle Paul is writing. He says, For what I received I passed on to you is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Amen. Praise God. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And now listen to this, starting in verse 5. And that he appeared. Who did he appear to? He appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. And then to the twelve, all the disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500. Everybody say 500. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of them who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, his brother. Then to all the apostles. So there were other apostles he appeared to. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. In other words, Paul's salvation was distinct from all the others. He was different. He knew it. Not that he was glorifying his difference. He was saying, I'm less than all of these other guys because I didn't follow Jesus while he was still here. But then he appeared to me. So, so Paul lists hundreds of people who personally saw Jesus after he died and rose again. And he says, most of them are still alive today. You can go ask him about it. And John writes his letter, and he says, yes, I'm writing to you about Jesus Christ. I'm not just writing to you something that I was taught. I'm not just writing to you something that he told me. I'm writing to you what I've seen with my own eyeballs. I have seen and I testify that he's the son of God. The father sent him into the world. He's the savior of the world, and I know it because I saw him rise back to life. It makes Christianity so unique. It is not like all of the others. It is not just another faith, especially when you realize these people didn't have motivation to make up some big lie. Oh yeah, I saw Jesus come back to life. Oh, you're not going to renounce that? We're going to put you to death. See, if you want to come up with a big lie to to make yourself feel really important at the point where somebody says, okay, you're going to die if you don't change your story, you're going to be like, just kidding. That didn't really happen. (laughs) Jesus didn't really come back to life. My bad. I don't know what I was smoking. I don't know why we told that story. But one by one, every woman and every man who stood up and said, I've seen him, they put their lives on the line. Most of them had their lives taken from them because of it. Why? Because to me, the obvious conclusion is it's actually what they saw. It changed the world. Their faith changed the world. It spread like crazy, not because they moved into new towns and conquered them and forced people to convert, but because they were being put to death for their faith, and everybody around them said there's something different about these people who love Jesus. There's something different about these people who call themselves Christians. There's something about their faith that's totally unique from anything I've ever seen. And one by one, people started giving their lives over to Christ because of their faith, because of this testimony of people like John who said, we have seen 
and testify that the Father set the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. Don't let anybody lie to you and say Christianity is just another faith. It's not. It's different. It's unique. It has power that no other faith can ever have because it's the living, breathing Son of God. Matt gave an amen. I think somebody else can give an amen on that. Verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they live in God. Verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Everybody say know and rely. So, so John says, because of all this, because of what God has done for me, because I've seen the Son of God raised back to life, and I know he's the Son of God, I have a love from God that I can know and that I can rely on. So, so I'm going to give you five attributes of the love of God that I, that I think are important. These are not an exhaustive list. There are many other attributes of God's love, but, but I think these will encourage you today. These will start to give you a little bit of a grasp of God's love. Because really here in 1 Corinthians 4, John's going to talk about the importance of us loving each other. He's going to continue hitting on that, but, but he's referring primarily to God, the love God has for us. In other words, if, if he's going to get it right, if we're going to get it right, if he's going to fix the fact that they don't love each other, he says the only way you're really going to love each other is if you experience God's love. As if you recognize God's love. That, that you've got to have that part first in order to begin loving each other. So he focuses on that. So, so first he says we know. So write this down. God's love is knowable. God's love is knowable. In other words, God's love is, is, is not so complex and so deep and so mysterious that you can't get a piece of it. Now, I'm not going to say you can grasp all of it because there's pieces of it that are just going to go over our head until we get to the next life, right? I'll never understand why God would leave heaven and die for me. That'll never fully make sense, but I can know his love. I can experience his love. Psalm says, I can taste and see that the Lord is good. So God's love is knowable. If you've never known the love of God, wow, you're missing out. I'm so sorry. My, my, my heart goes out to people who've never experienced the love of God because it's incredible and it's knowable. In other words, just because you haven't yet met him or yet experienced his love does not mean it's too far out of your grasp. doesn't mean you're so far gone. doesn't mean you've, you've committed the unpardonable sin and, man, now I'm destined forever to never know God. God wants you. He's after you. His love is knowable. But, but John says his love isn't just knowable. He goes on. He says God's love is reliable. I can know and I can rely on God's love. Why is that significant? Because the love of people is not reliable, right? How many times have you ever had somebody who loved you let you down? Anybody? Anybody else ever experienced that? Man, every day, right? We let each other down all the time. Our love is not reliable. Yeah, I might love you, but, but sometimes I'm not going to answer my phone. Right? Like, I might love you, but sometimes I'm not going to be available. I might love you, but sometimes I'm going to say something and not follow through. Right? But God's love isn't like my love. God's love is reliable. God's love isn't like your spouse's love. God's love isn't like your parents' love. I'm not saying your, your spouse has bad love for you or your, your, your parents don't have great love for you. I'm just saying his love is better. Because it's always reliable. His love will never let you down. You can know it and you can rely on the love of God. Amen? God's love is knowable. God's love is reliable. He says, so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. And then he makes this statement that he made it, I believe, in in verse 8 in last week's session. Josh got to study with you. He says it again. He says, God is love. Everybody say, God is love. 
God is love. So this, this, this incredible declaration that God doesn't just love. In other words, it's not just something he does. It's actually who he is. It flows out of his very nature, out of his very character, out of his very being. And in, in other words, if God is love, then every interaction you ever have with God has to be motivated by love. Everything he's ever done to you or done for you, he's done out of love because he is love. And here's why this is so encouraging but also so dangerous. Because we have to define love the way that God defines it, not the way that we define it. So when we hear that statement, and, and you'll see this, and, and it happened a lot of times in the culture, oh, I just, I just think God is love. Right. And then God's just this big loving guy. God's, you know, and so I don't agree with this thing that this church is saying because well, that's not love. You know, God, God loves everybody. God's there for everybody. God cares about everybody. Yes, God loves everybody. Yes, God cares about everybody. Yes, God's there for everybody. But his love is defined by him, not defined by us. You see, he defines love, and he defines himself. We don't get to come and apply our definitions to it, because if we apply our definitions to it, then that means every generation, God is different, because our definition of love changes with every generation, right? Every generation has a new picture, sometimes not even in a full generation. Sometimes our picture of love changes in two or three years. And, well, this is how we define love now. And so if God's love was defined by our definition of love, God would be constantly changing. But that's not the word of God. The word of God says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so he's not changing based on our definitions of love. He's not changing based on what this generation or that generation happens to value. He's not changing based on what's popular or, or what is accepted. He is who he is, and he is love. Amen? God is love. And so we have to understand what that means when, when, when we define, okay, well, God is love. It's very, very true, but we can't define it just the way we want to. First of all, we have to define it according to what this verse is actually trying to say. What is John saying? So, so he says, God is love. Well, you, you may be familiar with this, but there's three words for love in the Greek. Three words in the, in the New Testament that we translate as love. In other words, ancient Greek was, was a more complicated and, and, and fuller, deeper language than our language is. And so we don't have words to describe exactly what they were saying. So we have to, to apply it to just say love. So there was three. There's one is phileo love. That's, that's what we call brotherly love. I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about my brother in a minute because I got to see my brother this week and it was really exciting. And, and I love my brother. So we're going to talk about some phileo love. Man, I love brotherly love. Right? I, I love the fact that. That, that, that we can be boys, that we can be friends, that we can do life together, that we can be there for each other. Phileo love's a great thing. And then there's, then there's eros love, which is romantic love or erotic love. It's, it's the love that, that God designed for a man and a woman to share inside of marriage. It's, it's this amazing, incredible thing. And then there's the love that he talks about in this verse. In fact, it's the love that, that he's talking about frequently as he talks about God. He says, God is love, and that's agape. Agape love. Agape love is unconditional love. It's love without limit. It's love without expectation uh, of it being, what's the word I'm looking for? Reciprocated. Thank you. Yes. Reciprocation. Um, it, it, it's love without requirement. It's I love you just the way you are. I love who you are. I love the way that I created you. I love you right where you're at. God's love for us is unconditional. Now, God's love for us is unconditional. That's not the only thing about his love. Let me give you a couple, couple other characteristics of love that I think are important. 
God's love is unrelenting. It's unrelenting. In other words, it doesn't give up. See, human love is relenting. We can say we love each other unconditionally, but there is a point in time where you've hurt me deeply enough and badly enough where, man, we, this, this relationship is going to change, right? Like, like I'm not going to let you just keep on hurting me and keep on abusing me. And, and that's wise, by the way. I don't think any of us should be just continually trampled upon or, or, or beaten up or, or, or abused. Um, so, so our love relents. There's a point in time where, okay, I'm going to move on. I'm going to find somebody else to express my love to. God's love isn't that way. His love is unrelenting. As long as you're on this earth, his love is pursuing you. His love is after you. Psalm says that, that his mercies are new every morning, right? How awesome is that? In other words, every day I get to experience a new dose of God's love. Every day, God's got a new expression of his love that he is positioned for me, that he is pouring out on me. I may not experience it. I may not receive it because I may not be aware of it or, or be pressing into it. But every single day, his mercy is new. His love is new for me each and every day. That's awesome. My love's not like that. God's love is better. God's love is also uncompromising. It's uncompromising. Here's why this is important. You see, we have to balance the unconditional nature of God's love with the uncompromising nature of God's love. When I say God's love is uncompromising, God knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for me. He's God, right? Like, he knows the way he designed this world to work. He knows the way he designed my body to work. He knows the way he designed my relationships to work. He knows the way he designed things to work, and he wants the absolute best for my life. He wants his absolute best for your life. And as long as I'm resisting that, as long as I'm holding back from that, as long as I'm not experiencing his absolute best, his uncompromising love is compelling me to move closer to it. Through the conviction of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me, through the correction of the word of God, through people who are in my life who he's placed there to help me get better. And so God loves me exactly the way I am, but that doesn't mean God loves that I'm exactly the way I am. Does that make sense? He loves me right where I'm at. He'll never love me more. It's not that the more that I get like Jesus, the more that he loves me. He loves me right where I'm at. But because he loves me right where I'm at, he's not willing to leave me right where I'm at. He's compelling me to constantly get better. And this is where our culture misses it when we just say, oh, I just think God is just love. Because what we're trying, what we're really saying is I don't think God cares how I live my life. I think I can do whatever I want to, and God still loves me. And yes, he does, but God loves you too much to let you do whatever you want to. Because his love is uncompromising. It's unrelenting. It's unconditional. His love is knowable. His love is reliable. When we begin to see what his word actually says about his love, we get a much fuller picture than just throwing out this statement, well, God is love. I think the statement is, is fantastic. It's scriptural. It's amazing. But I also think we can abuse it if we're not careful. We've got to be careful to use God's word the way God's word is intended to be used. Moving on, verse 17. He says, this is how love is made complete among us. So that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Again, he uses that word we talked about a couple weeks ago. Confidence. What a great thing. You can have confidence when you stand before God. You can be confident as you look into the eyes of your maker. That you know what? I know that I'm right with you. 
I know that I've followed you. I know that I've loved you. I know that I've lived for you. No, I haven't got it all right. Yes, I've made mistakes, but I know I have confidence in your love for me and in where I'm at with you. He says, we can have confidence on the day of judgment. We know this. His love is made complete in us, what? When we are like Jesus. Verse 18, he says, there's no fear in love. What's the context of this? We, we, we've heard this statement before probably, right? Like you may have heard this, that well, perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. It's a great statement. It's an awesome thing. What's he talking about? He's talking about in context, you don't have to be afraid on the day of judgment. You don't have to be afraid to stand before God. Why? Because his love has captured you. You've experienced it. And because you know that you're loved by him, you know that he received his salvation. You know that you followed him and become like Jesus. You can have confidence and perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Again, he's talking about the judgment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Then verse 19, he says this other very, very famous statement in this chapter. He says, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. I hate to use multiple illustrations from the same guy, but I got to talk about my brother John one more time. Because there's one other thing about my brother John that I absolutely love. My, my brother John is 12 years older than me. My dad was married uh, a, a previous time. He had two kids. He had my brother John and my sister Tracy. Tracy's 10 years older than me. And, and when my sister was nine months old, his first wife, Sandy, moved out and moved in with the guy next door. Uh, and uh, that my dad was her third husband. She ended up being married 14 times. Uh, dad says the best thing he ever did for society was to get her tubes tied. Uh, I love my dad. Uh, just, just being real. This is my family. Um, so we kind of have two, two, sets, two, two sets of kids, right? So my dad, years later, comes to Christ. Um, he has this radical transformation. God does this incredible stuff in his life, and he ends up marrying the lady who led him to Jesus, and that's my mom. And so my brother Nick and I come from my dad's second marriage and, and this totally different situation that my brother John and Tracy come from. And so John and Tracy never gave their lives to Jesus. Um, but, but one thing John did is when, I, when he was 12 years old and he had a little brother, he fell in love with his little brother. As this, the family story goes, the family legend goes, he came to see me in the hospital and he was looking at me in the, in the nursery in the little baby bed and I looked at him and smiled and from that point forward I was his brother. Uh, he's my boy. He's my brother. Um, my mom says I probably just had gas, and that's why I smiled. Thanks, Mom. Uh, but, but for whatever reason, I smiled at my brother, and he just decided we were going to be boys. And he pursued me so hard. He loved me so well. The, the, the story goes that John and Tracy kind of competed for me at first, but John was winning so strongly that Tracy just finally gave up, and she decided when we had another kid that he was going to be hers. So we had like this family rivalry. It was like me and John against Nick and Tracy all the time uh, because I was John's brother. He loved me so much. And, and so guess what happened as I grew up? I loved him. Because he first loved me. Right? What, what is it like when you have that incredible love, when somebody loves you unconditionally, when somebody loves you just the way you are, before you even know what love is, before you can even comprehend what it looks like, you have it demonstrated to you and poured out on you. What's your natural response? I love you back. Right? Isn't that what we all do? 
Isn't that why we adore our mom and dad when we're kids? And then we grow up and we discover they've got flaws and imperfections. And then we go through a phase where we like to point out those flaws and imperfections. And, and then we grow up and we realize we have flaws and imperfections too. And we make things right with mom and dad. But we go through that whole process. But early on, we had, man, they're perfect, right? Mom and dad can do no wrong. Why? Because they love us. We love them because they first loved us. We don't know how to love somebody when we're first born. I didn't know how to love John when I was sitting there in the nursery farting and smiling, right? Like I didn't have any idea what love was. But he poured that love out on me. And I loved him back. Why do we love Jesus? We love Jesus not because the Bible tells us to love Jesus. We don't love Jesus because if we don't, we're going to go to hell. None of that is why we love Jesus. We love Jesus because before we were ever capable of loving anyone or anything, he loved us. We love him because he first loved us, because he poured out his incredible love for us while we were still sinners, while we were still far from him, while we were still in rebellion and rejection to him. He said, you know what? I love you anyway, and I'm going to lay down my life for you anyway. He loved us. It's because he first loved us, we can love him. Do you have that? Did you already put that picture up? I don't know if you already put it up, but I did bring a picture. That's my big brother. He's 48 years old now. I got a chance to hang out with him this week, and it was it was super cool. I haven't seen him in, like I said, in nine years, almost nine years, eight years. Um, and so it was great. But but every time we get together, it's like we had never spent a day apart. Because that bond is always there. Because he just loved me from day one. I never earned it. I never deserved it. But he just loved me, and now he has the same incredible love for my kids that he had for me. And that's what was so cool about this trip for me, is I got to kind of stand back and see that same character, that same nature that had pursued me as a baby that I'd heard about my whole life, and watch him pour that out on my kids. It's awesome. It's incredible. And it's not perfect love. It's not unconditional love. It's not uncompromising love or unrelenting love. Only God has that. And so as much as John's love for me is, is amazing and blows my mind, God's love for you and for me is so much deeper than that and so much greater. We love him because he first loved us. Verse 20, he says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Do you, do you catch what he said in verse 20? I want to make sure you caught that. He said, if you claim to love God and you don't love your brother and sister, you're a liar. It's pretty harsh. It's pretty direct, man. We, again, we, we see the, the apostle of love, but we also see the thun, son of thunder. Like John's pretty direct and pretty in our face. He said, if you claim to love God, did you hate a brother or sister? You're a liar. In, in other words, if I truly love God, then his love is, is active inside of me. And if his love is active inside of me, I'm going to love you. And, and so the, the vertical and the horizontal are always connected, right? The, the, if my relationship with God is out of whack, my marriage is going to be out of whack. If my relationship with God is out of whack, my, my pastoring, of course, is going to be out of whack. But even if I wasn't a pastor, if I was a bread truck driver, right, like that would be out of whack. If, if I was a, an engineer, that would be out of whack. If I was an IT guy, that would be out of whack if my relationship with God is out of whack. Because this always flows out of this. And so my love for God is evidenced in my love for people. 
In fact, my love for God empowers me to love people because as I love God, I become more and more like Him. And the same is true for you and is true for me. But it all starts with His love. Why do we love Him? Because He loved us first. Why do we love other people? Because we love Him and He loved us first. It all starts with the love of God. So we're going to end up service a little bit different today, guys. Um, I'm not even going to do a fresh start. I'm not even going to pray over you. Um, we're going to go back into worship for, for, for a little longer than we normally do at the end of service. And I want you to soak in God's love. I want you to experience God's love. I know we kind of got a routine, and I'm getting you out of your routine, and sometimes people love that, and other people hate it. If you're one of the ones that hates it, suck it up. Uh, because I truly believe this is what God spoke for this week. See, this message was all about God's love. And God's love can't just be here. You've got to experience it. I can tell you about it all day long, but you've got to experience it. And I believe sometimes we need to experience it again. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes it, it, it's lost some, some impact in my life as I've drifted from him. So we're going to experience his love, and we're going to love on him. And as we love on him, he's going to empower us to love each other, to be more like him. We're going to respond to him. We're going to worship him. Why do we worship him? Because he first loved us. Because we love him. Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. So, so we're going to worship, and we're going to go back into a song we did last week. Hopefully you were here, but, but if not, it's okay. It's, it's really easy when I catch on to. It's called How He Loves. And we're going to declare that God loves us. And as you do, I don't want you just to go through the motions of worship. You may need to get on a knee. You may need to raise your hands. You may need to just make some space for yourself in the back or at the front. You may need to put your arm around somebody. And I want us to soak in the love of God this morning. I, want to, I believe that God's love can penetrate our hard hearts, our thick heads, and can impact our lives. I believe that God's love is the most powerful force in the universe. And we need to experience it today. Amen? Would you stand with me? I, I'm going to pray over you very, very quickly. And I'm going to turn it over to the worship team. And I'm going to ask you to press in and worship the one who first loved you.